0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the CMS Oil and Gas Annual Review podcast series. In this series, we're discussing the latest development in English oil and gas law and what they mean for the industry. My name is Valerie Allen. I'm a partner in our specialist energy disputes team and I'm joined today by Judith Aldersey-Williams and Graham Clubley who are both partners in our oil and gas team and we're talking specifically about some recent cases on transportation and processing agreements and um, how those are properly interpreted in uh, arrangements that last over many years. Judith would you like to start um, by describing the first case that we're going to look at?
1: Yes, so we're going to start by talking about Apache North Sea Limited versus Ineos FPS Limited, uh, which is a case that arose out uh, ultimately, I suppose, of the sale by BP of the 40s field to Apache back in 2003. Uh, BP at that point retained the 40s pipeline system and so needed to put in place a transportation agreement to allow 40s to keep shipping production uh, through the pipeline system. Subsequently, BP sold the 40s pipeline system to INEOS. um, Like most uh, transportation and processing agreements, this one had a production profile that said uh, how much um, uh, Apache intended to ship by quarter that ran out to 2020. Apache did a great job of uh, extending the life of the 40s field and wanted to uh, extend that production profile all the way out to 2040. The provisions of the agreement said that provided there was uncommitted capacity in the 40s pipeline system, that INEOS um, uh, would permit that and would not unreasonably withhold its consent to, to the change to that production profile. Um, When approached, however, INEOS said that the only basis on which they were prepared to extend the production profile was if the tariff under the agreement was significantly raised, which they said was reasonable to compensate them for the um, large investment they were making in extending the life of the FPS. So the question was, fundamentally, was it reasonable of INEOS to require an increase to the tariff um, as a condition for allowing this extension to the, uh, effectively to to the uh, production profile under the agreement? The case law about um, the giving of consent, a lot of it relates to landlord and tenant cases. uh, And um, those principles have been applied subsequently to consent in other circumstances. So the um, uh, court in this case looked at those precedents and extracted some some key principles uh, from them, which included that you can't look at that consent clause uh, in isolation. You have to look at it in the context of the agreement as a whole, and that it won't usually be reasonable for um, a landlord uh, uh, to impose a condition which is either unrelated to the consent provision or which has the effect of increasing the rights that the landlord enjoys under the lease, or in this case, uh, the rights that um, INEOS enjoyed under the transportation and processing agreement. However, Having said that, it might be reasonable uh, to give the landlord something or the the counterparty something they wouldn't already have under the contract if that addresses a legitimate concern they have arising out of the request for consent. So, for instance, you can imagine in many cases a consent to a sign um, uh, if the proposed assignee is a weaker financial covenant than the current counterparty, it would be reasonable for um, the person giving the consent to ask for some sort of guarantee or security in return for agreeing to that consent, even if the agreement didn't originally contain a guarantee or security. So applying those traditional principles in this case, um, the court held that INEOS's um, condition uh, was not a reasonable one. Uh, Because. um, Apache was in a position where um, under the agreement, they were effectively required to ship any production through the 40s pipeline system. Um, And they had no ability uh, to alter the terms of the tariff on on a a request for an extension. Um, The contract already contained an escalation, which. provision that are applied to the tariff for however long the contract went on. And there were other provisions which protected INEOS in the event that um, the provision of the service to Apache was no longer economic. Uh, and in all those circumstances, the court concluded that it wouldn't be reasonable to um, allow INEOS to fundamentally change the commercial bargain of the contract, which was that they would provide a service um, at the tariff stated in the contract for as long as Apache uh, had production that they wanted to ship and there was capacity for that.
0: So, um, thanks, Judith. That's that's one of the um, issues that we see coming up quite regularly in relation to transportation and processing agreements, the question of consents and, and how those should be given or, or when they can be withheld. Um, another issue that we see coming up increasingly as infrastructure gets older and, and, and the basin matures, Graham, is the question of moves from tariff to cost share arrangements. Would you like to outline for us the second case that we wanted to, to look at today?
2: Sure, so I'm going to talk about the the case involving TGTL, Teesside Gas Transportation Limited, and the owners of the CATS system. So, TGTL entered into an agreement, which was referred to as the Capacity Reservation and Transportation Agreement, CRTA, with the CATS owners in 1990. It was a long-term agreement it was to carry on for almost 30 years to 2018. An agreement entitled TGTL to a certain amount of capacity in the CATS gas pipeline system through to October 2018. TGTL was then able to sell that capacity to, to shipper fields, fields tied back to the CAT system, Uh, and for that reason it's been described as as creating a a pipe within a pipe arrangement. The the agreement provided for TGTL to pay CATS at a fixed transportation fee through until 2013, and then from 2013 to 2018, the tariff would change to a cost share regime, and the dispute was to do with the calculation of the cost share tariff payable by TGTL in those later years. So TGTL was to pay a share of the cat's owner's costs in running the system. So that was their OPEX, extraordinary OPEX and CAPEX, plus a 15% markup to give the cat's owners a, a profit element. The, the applicable share was TGTL's capacity reservation rate as a percentage of the cat's capacities, and, and those terms are quite important as you look at the case. So the cat the capacity reservation rate for TGTL was the amount of gas capacity reserved to TGTL in the relevant contract year. There was a a fixed daily amount specified in the contract with the ability for TGTL to reduce that from from 2008 onwards on on certain notice periods. CAT's capacities, on the other hand, was the total of the TGTL capacity reservation rate and the aggregate aggregate maximum rates of delivery of non-capacity gas notified by the CATS operator pursuant to a specified clause of of the contract. And non-capacity gas was was essentially gas from other fields, i.e. not those ones that are shipping through TGTL's capacity, that were tied back to to CATS. There was an obligation on the CATS operator to to notify TGTL when it entered into a transportation agreement with shippers in respect of, of that non-capacity gas, and one of the things that they were obliged to notify TGTL of was the maximum rate of delivery that would be coming through from that field during the proposed period of transportation. So in in simple terms, the the higher the non-capacity gas, the lower TGTL's cost share allocation because of the way that the the formula worked. And the dispute turned on, on what was meant by aggregate maximum rates of delivery. Of non-capacity gas during the contract term. Did this mean, as, as TGDL contended, the highest rate of delivery from a field during the whole term of its transportation agreement? Or did it mean, as the CATS parties contended, that it meant that the firm booked capacity of that field in the relevant contract year for which the, the cost share tariff was being determined? And the difference between the parties was worth about £37 million. Now, clearly, fields deplete over time. So, early in the in the years of the CATS system, there was a build-up of that non-capacity gas as new fuels were tied back to CATS, but then eventually production from those fields would start to deplete. Uh, and what that meant was that in the later years of the CRTA, production rates through CATS would have fallen below the rates that they would have been at their peak uh, volumes when, when those fuels were producing at their maximum rates. The court at first instance agreed with the the cat's owners, and that was upheld by the Court of Appeal. And interestingly, the court thought that the clause in question was capable of more than one interpretation, and it thought that TGTL's arguments had had some linguistic merit. If you look just at the clauses in question, then they they did support TGTL's argument. However, the court determined that you had to look at the contract as a whole, uh, and that was necessary to understand the the way those terms or similar language was used elsewhere in the contract and also to, to shed light on the commercial intent of the provisions. And doing that, the court felt that it was quite clear that non-capacity gas should be based on firm booked capacities. What that meant was that non-capacity gas volumes used in the calculation were much lower because they weren't the peak delivery rates. And that meant that TGTL's cost share was higher. Um, What was relevant to to the court's determination? Well, as originally drafted, the the CATS operator was to provide regular updates to the information that it initially notified in respect of, of new fields coming through CATS. And there was nothing in the contract to prevent the CATS operator notifying changes to the maximum rate of delivery. So the contract seemed to envisage that that number, the maximum rate of delivery, may change over time. And the court felt that was inconsistent with TGTL's position that that it was always going to be the, the, the peak delivery rate for each uh, field coming through the system. Also, there was very similar language used elsewhere in the contract. So, for example, in, in the clause of the contract that dealt with capacity constraints, where there's insufficient capacity to take everyone's production, the the court felt that it, would be incons- it just wouldn't be commercially sensible for capacity that is available to be allocated based on historic production rates, it would make far more commercial sense for that allocation to be done based on what the different users of the system are capable of producing at the time and therefore it was sensible to use their, their firm book capacities. So like I said at the start, um the CATS parties won into GTL lost and, and it was worth about thirty seven million pounds.
0: Thanks Graham. So We've got two decisions there, which I suppose on one view turn very closely and look very carefully at the precise language of the contracts that are are being disputed and considered by the parties. But I wonder if there are any broader points that we think can be drawn from either or both of these decisions, in, in particular in the context of transportation and processing agreements that are often set up with the intention that they'll run over 10 or 20 or or more years. Um, Judith, do you get any thoughts on that?
1: I I, I do. Um, And I think one thing that's quite noticeable is that um, both decisions made it clear that you cannot look at a contract clause in isolation and that you have to consider it in the context of the contract as a whole, both when looking at how the drafting that you are discussing is used elsewhere in the contract and looking at the overall commercial scheme of the contract. I I think the other thing that's apparent is that when you have a contract that um, is going to last for 20 years, you know, as many oil and gas contracts do, It's very, very difficult to draft a contract that um, is is perfect and that uh, adequately describes every circumstance that you may come across over over the life of the contract, um, which uh, is unfortunately something that um, tends to lead to these kinds of disputes.
0: No, I, th- I think that's right. And uh, Graham, obviously, we've seen or we're, th- I think, increasingly seeing issues arising as more and more infrastructure flips over from tariff to cost-share arrangements, issues arising in relation to how those provisions are understood and, and put into practice. Do you think there's any guidance to be taken from the TGTL decision on that? Uh,
2: yes, I-, I think there's there's a few things. Firstly, the importance of, of considering, as, as Judith said, the contract as a whole. And, and what I mean by that is, is that it, it's quite easy sometimes to, to think about the transportation agreement as, as being in different sections. So, for example, the commercial team might, might go and run with the tariff. The lawyers might deal with the capacity constraint sections, just by way of example. And what we saw in the TGTL case was the judges interpreting the cost share tariff because of the way that similar concepts and similar language was used elsewhere in the contract. So it's very important that a transportation agreement, or any contract for that matter, isn't a series of sections that are amalgamated without considering the impact of having, having those sections amalgamated. Um, so I think that's the first thing. I guess the other thing that, that I took from that case was the, the risks of using precedence, you know, the risks of, of taking an agreement that's been used before and thinking, well, that cost share arrangement worked, so we can just roll it over for this, this new system, or, or this new arrangement, because some of these uh, older agreements have been challenged in the courts, others have given rise to disputes that haven't made it to the courts because they've been resolved commercially. Uh, but I think if you spoke to most lawyers who who have been involved in transportation agreements and who've been involved with cost share arrangements, they will be familiar with issues that have come up in the past and will have those in mind when they look to, to to draft provisions now. And so in, in addition to the, the things we saw in, in TGTL, what I've seen in the past, for example, is you have one system with a number of users, a number of different transportation agreements, but the cost share arrangements aren't the same so that the costs that are allowable the costs that the owners of the system can include in the calculation might be different for the different uh, users of the system the way those costs are allocated might not be quite the same but, and of course that causes problems for the the operator because ideally they would just like to have a model where they put the same costs into every every field and you know the sausage machine spits out the, the correct number but uh, often that's that's not what the contracts envisage and that can give rise to disputes, particularly later in life of fields when there's not so much money being made and people are far more concerned with what they're paying.
1: There's a great, great quote in the Apache decision. Um, It it comes from an earlier case, in fact, uh, Amy Birmingham, Highways against Birmingham uh, City Council. Uh, It says, any relational contract of this character is likely to be of massive length containing many infelicities and oddities, both parties should adopt a reasonable approach in accordance with what is obviously the long term purpose of the contract. They should not be latching onto the infelicities and oddities in order to disrupt the project and maximise their own gain. I think we can all think of occasions where uh, lawyers on one side or another have been uh, very keen to latch onto infelicities and oddities where it suited their particular uh, argument.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for that, Graham. Um, I think both of these cases are interesting, not just in relation to the sort of transportation and processing agreement sphere, but but of broader application. We see these kinds of issues coming up in disputes across a range of contracts in the oil and gas industry, I think that question of consent not to be unreasonably withheld, that comes up in relation, for example, to assignment provisions. And many GOAs would run over 20 or 30 years as well. So these are not the only contracts, I think, that these kind of issues need to be grappled with. And I suppose at a a higher level, we can take some comfort from the fact that in both of these cases, the courts seem to have been prepared to look at the whole arrangement that was intended between the parties and the commercial purpose of that arrangement over the course of many years, accepted that that relationship changes a little bit as time goes on, and that the contract needs to be understood in the context in which it's being operated, and um, so that you can't just focus on the language in one provision, but you need to look at the whole spectrum of what the parties have agreed to decide how their, their relationship should um, work. That might not make it any easier on a day-to-day basis to understand what drafting from 20 years ago meant but at least it helps us to understand the context in which these things should be understood so um well thank you both for for that today i hope everybody has um found that interesting if you've got any comments then we'd be uh, we'd love to hear from you